Welcome back to the third installment of our discussion of Ellen Hildebrand's Summer of 69. If you're stumbling upon this and you haven't heard the first or second episodes, you're going to want to uh, go back and listen to the first two chunks of this lecture before you dive in. As always, the third part of the lecture is going to have some spoilers, so you want to uh, have finished this gem before you listen to this last half hour. Okay, so in the uh, in the past, in the past hour, we have discussed really what makes this, uh, yes, it's a frothy beach read, and yes, it's fun to read, and yes, it's, um, it, you know, maybe not our most heady fiction that we have looked at, but there are really a lot of remarkable ways in which Ellen Hildebrand is a very skilled writer, and we would not be reading it if that were not, in fact, the case, and I really am a fan of reading really broadly, you know, everything from, yes, Ulysses all the way to the summer of 69. So in this case, we have, we've dived into uh, her incredible, the, the, the wide range of the different people that we have met and the appeal of that really wide range, how you have everything from kind of a young, uh, you know, teen, sort of a, you know, like someone who's just on the verge of womanhood all the way through a grandmother type figure. So. There's a little bit, you know, something for everyone in some in a in a novel that has this much breadth, but there's also this really cool thing where, uh, you know, each character is very round and each character is is well fleshed out, and it's actually surprising to me how much tension Hildebrand creates with each one of the with each of the characters, which is really just, um, you know, it's impressive. But one of the aspects that I uh, am most interested in is her figurative language. And those of you who have been listening to these lectures for a long time know that I have very high standards for figurative language. When I say figurative language, I simply mean any language that has a, a, a resonance or a meaning or a, a denotation of something other than the actual words. Uh, so metaphor, simile, pathetic fallacy, which is simply when when sort of the um, the the nature or the ambiance around the novel, whenever natural elements are reflecting what is happening for our character. Uh, we have foreshadowing, symbolism, all of those things that you learned in 10th grade English. So I'm very picky about figurative language because frankly, it's kind of icing on the cake. And lots of people, I think, really feel like they need it in their work. And then it, it when it falls flat, it is not great. So Ellen Hildebrand, I think, is actually wielding what is kind of a tricky part of novel writing. She's wielding it very effectively. So one of the um, things that we're going to dive into first is this notion of metaphor and simile. So a metaphor is a comparison. And ideally, that is a comparison that is going to allow a reader to have a, a, a deeper, richer, more nuanced understanding of something. It can be anything. It can be a character. It can be someone's reaction. There are all sorts of different um, you know, things that a metaphor can enrich. A simile is simply a metaphor that uses the word like or as. It's a very, um, I mean, in some ways, it's a totally arcane and stupid kind of distinction, but there it is. So, uh, but the way that metaphor works best is when you have two elements that are somewhat close together, 
but that are different enough to shed new light on whatever is being referred to. So if you have things that are really, really wide apart or really strange and, and sort of strange enough that the reader is jarred a bit, then that can take us out of the of the story, out of the world of the of the text. So you really, as a writer, you really, it's, it's a fine line between something that is really illustrative and something that's really additive versus something that's just weird and kind of jarring and ineffective. Generally speaking, you don't want to pull your reader out of the story. You don't want to pull them out of the world that you're creating. So we're going to look at why a lot of Ellen Hildebrand's metaphors and similes are in fact very, uh, very effective. First, we're going to look at page 252. So um, down at the bottom, I'm smiling just because I, I haven't looked at this text for a while and I just, I find so much of it just sort of charming and, and like surprisingly charming. Uh, just even looking at the names and stuff as I'm opening the book, I'm like, oh my gosh, right, so good. So down at the bottom here, we have Kirby together with Darren. So Kirby is of course the, the one of the middle children in the novel and is, is very much a middle child. She's kind of this wild child rebel type. And she is in a, a car with Darren, her love interest. It says, they talk in the car and they kiss in the car. The mere sight of the red Corvair turning the corner makes Kirby's heart breach like a whale. So this is a simile because she is using the word like. And honestly, most of the time I'd be like, I don't know, if you told me you were going to do a simile with a whale and your heart, I'd be like, hmm, like that does not sound like it's going to be a great idea. But this is so well done because, first of all, this is something that is happening on the island of Nantucket. So I think a seaside motif is actually very apt. And there's also something, I mean, almost verging on the cliche, but something that works really well for me about kind of the majesty and how easy it is to imagine a whale breaching. There's also something about the technical term, this idea of breaching. Um, it, it's not like a whale thundering from the ocean. It, it, it's this technical term about the whale breaching, which again is a little bit of that kind of, uh, those writerly chops, that elevated diction that, that uh, Ellen Hildebrand wields so well. But this idea of having her heart breach like a whale I mean, maybe for you, that's a bit too much. And it almost is too much for me, but I actually really like it. I, I, it didn't take me out of the text. And in fact, it made me kind of have that feeling, you know, that like, oh, that kind of surge of love, which is exactly what uh, Hildebrand is trying to help us understand that Kirby is experiencing. Okay, 373. This is also fun for me because I don't remember. My shitty memory means that I don't remember any of this. And so as I'm looking, each one of these is a real, a real surprise. Uh, okay, and then again, this is Kirby. Maybe there are more uh, metaphors and similes with Kirby than anyone else. That would be an interesting uh, sort of data analysis that I am not going to undertake. So this is Kirby's backstory. This is when Kirby runs into uh, Scotty Turbo, which honestly is the worst name in the entire novel. But this is when she runs into him. This is this man she's been having an affair with the year before. And his wife is there and she is very pregnant. So yeah, it, it, it sort of Kirby is, is sort of doing all of these mental calculations about when the wife would have gotten pregnant and, and when that would have corresponded with her affair with Scotty Turbo terrible name. So in the middle of the page here, the wife says, can I help you with something? 
Kirby freezes. Her mind spins like a wheel on a game show. So this one did take me a little bit out of the out of the novel. Like I was a little bit like, does this work for me? And I realized that yes, it does. But but I it did. I did a little bit of um, analysis there. And what I concluded was that it works because when I think of Wheel of Fortune, which is I think what we are supposed to sort of imagine here, it, it is a very nostalgic moment. I mean, I know it's still constantly on the television, but, but this idea of, of a somewhat nostalgic metaphor is a good one here. It's also not kind of labored and 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 long and involved. It's just very, her mind, what does it say? Word turned something. I'm going to go back and look at it now. Um, but it, I think it is a pretty apt, uh, her mind spins, which actually also is, a, you know, I think it's the simplicity in some of what Hildebrand is doing that allows these to not feel overwrought. Uh, her mind spins like a wheel on a game show. I, I, I like it. I think it works. Okay. The last uh, metaphor simile we're going to look at is on page 404. Okay. Oh my gosh, it's Kirby again. What's with Kirby and all of the similes? Uh, maybe she just gets all the best ones. So in the middle here, she's with her grandmother and they're drinking champagne. Kirby watched the bubbles fizz, pop, and evaporate, which was exactly what would happen to Exalta's enthusiasm about Kirby's mystery man. So I'm, I'm just gonna give a little bit of context for that, which is that she is about to bring Darren, her love interest, into the home. And because he's black, she's worried that her grandmother, whose name is Exalta, is not going to take well to this idea. Exalta is a very Boston Brahmin, old school Nantucketer who's very proper and and kind of a bitch, really. So she's concerned. And and I like this metaphor, this idea of, of the bubbles fizzing and popping and how um, the, the, the way that they're evaporating is what is going to happen to Exalta's reaction. You know, right now Exalta is very much caught up in it, the celebratory era of the evening. And fairly soon, you know, that is going to sort of pop and evaporate like these bubbles. I think what I liked about this in part is that usually, you know, a champagne kind of fizziness would have to do with something positive. And for this reason, it was, again, I had to do a little bit of like work to get there. But when I realized that she was using the champagne and the idea of champagne as being, you know, something that's ephemeral and something that's really not good once the bubbles have have gone, uh, that it actually was, in fact, a pretty effective, uh, pretty effective metaphor. Yet another one for Kirby. So we're going to move on now from metaphor and simile to this idea of symbolism. So there is a, a sort of a symbolic motif and motif when we're talking about literature is simply a, sort of something that is sustained throughout a novel. And that can be, uh, you know, an extended metaphor. It can be a symbol that is, you know, recurring throughout the text. In this case, the symbol is is the necklace that Jessie gets. So she receives, uh, you know, on the eve of going to Nantucket for the summer, which she's not happy about, and the eve of her birthday, she receives a necklace from her father. And it is this tree of life necklace, and it is very symbolic of their bond and of their Judaism. So she, her father, she and her father are Jewish. And this is actually a real issue throughout the book because she is the only child of her parents' marriage. And the other siblings are her half-siblings. And, and there are a lot of kind of questions about intolerance and prejudice against uh, Jewish people on Nantucket, particularly on the part of Exalta, her grandmother, who will not let her use her last name because it sounds Jewish when she is signing in at the country club. So we have this real weight that, that is literally kind of hanging, well, 
it's not a weight hanging on her shoulders at this point. That's a terrible metaphor by me, but it's a um, it, it, it's a talisman in lots of ways. This tree of life necklace, and it's not something. It's not kind of on the nose. It's not a star of David. It's this idea of the tree of life, which I love as a symbol because it echoes the family tree. It echoes, you know, the Bible and, and Adam and Eve with that tree motif which is one of those nice stories that that pertains to both uh, you know Jewish faith and Christian faith. So you have this tree of life and 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 also just this notion of 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 the high stakes for her. I mean this this kind of talisman that she is holding on to because as someone who is just turning 13 years old, the stakes do feel high for her in everything, you know sort of every piece of what is happening that summer all the way from her kleptomania you know, to her, to her sort of uh, unrequited love for Tiger with a few makeout sessions. So um, she's got her necklace. And then, of course, when she gets to Nantucket, her grandmother gives her a gift of this necklace, which is a knot. It's, it's a gold knot that has a diamond, a small diamond in it. And it's a family heirloom that is coming from Exalta. It's something that was given to uh, Jesse's that Jesse's grandfather gave to Jesse's grandmother. So it's it's really a very big deal on both sides that she has given these necklaces. And these people are very competing people. Her father is kind of, uh, you know, he's he's very much a symbolism of her her Jewishness and and sort of everything that is outside the realm of the novel. And Exalta is is sort of, um, you know, a symbol of of the Christian kind of bedrock of this family. That has really kind of ostracized her uh, uh, Jesse's Jewish father. So you have these two necklaces that are really in direct opposition, and they're both really highly valued by Jesse. So it's it's this um, it's a beautiful symbol because it's relatively subtle. Like I'm, I mean, I'm sure as a reader, I would think that maybe you you sort of saw the way that these necklaces were were sort of competing against one another, but it's not heavy handed and it's not sort of too obvious or too over over the top. I did like the fact that the gold thing is a knot um, and that, you know, I think you can, it's sort of like maybe like a Celtic, like love knot kind of a thing, but it is this sense of, of, of Exalta being kind of like kind of hardcore and, and, and knotted up and that family as being kind of knotted and, and uh, you know, sort of um, like, like uptight maybe a little bit. And then the finery of the diamond and the gold is in direct opposition to the more sort of no-nonsense tree of knowledge, which is, I think, silver. So, of course, you know, Hildebrand is not just going to give us these symbols. She's going to, to add tension to the novel. And in fact, it's very artfully done because, of course, Jesse loses the, the necklace that belongs to the grandmother after having stolen it from her grandmother's, uh, you know, jewelry box. And there's actually a very nice kind of ethical consideration about whether she was stealing it from her grandmother's jewelry box because her grandmother had actually given it to her, but she did take it without permission when her grandmother was trying to safeguard it. And then of course she lost it. So not only do we have these excellent symbols that are sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, really I think a good illustration of some of the, the turmoil that Jesse herself is feeling, but then it becomes this kind of awesome plot point. So we are gonna move on from this notion of metaphors and, and then similes, which apparently all pertain to Kirby, and move on from this symbolic sort of uh, presence of these two necklaces in Jesse's life. And we're gonna move on to a, a really important literary trope, which is the notion of the house in literature. So um, whenever you see a house in literature, you should pay attention. 
And for those of you who are here to learn to read better, you should always be paying attention. But it's also helpful if you have a couple of kind of standard tropes that that are, um, you know, in, in some ways sort of a key to understanding literature better. One of them is if you ever find a, a tree in literature or an apple or a snake, you should be thinking about that, the, the Eden, the Garden of Eden, and you should think of Adam and Eve. And in order to take it one step further, you want to remember that one of the the sort of the eating from the, the tree and, and having the fruit of knowledge meant that Adam and Eve understood that they were naked and, and sort of flawed. It was sort of that, which is so like not my jam and also like some weird way that the American Puritan thing has really like latched on to this kind of modesty and whatnot. But it's important to understand that that um, the, the, the Edenic motif is very important if you see those elements. But what we're talking about today is the idea of the house as, as a metaphor. So a house is often a stand-in for essentially like the state of the country or the family or, or whatever it is. So if you have a really dilapidated house, if you have a really grand house, it's most interesting when when the house isn't just like a really you know great Gatsby. It's like this huge house, but of course it's empty. You know, it's that it's that kind of thinking that will really allow you to understand the house as as kind of symbolic and, and metaphorical for really important elements in whatever novel it is. I loved Ellen Hildebrand's use of the house. It's so well done. So we're going to look at page 69. There are two main houses. Well, there are three main houses, uh, but there are two sort of houses that come into play. The first uh, is the, the house that Exalta owns. And this is a house on, an, on a very kind of, um, you know, posh street in Nantucket. It's very old. It's right in town. Um, it, and it's, uh, it, it's a house that has been in the family for a long time, but was owned well, well before that. And it has everything to do with kind of being like, like, you know, the people who claim to have come over on the Mayflower and, you know, sort of that like old, crusty, waspy, American kind of exceptionalism that has to do with forefathers. So uh, you you have this real emphasis there of, of that house as being important. So on 69, we have uh, this description. So this is, um, this is Kate, who is coming into the house called All's Fair. It's on Fair Street. It's also significant that the house is called All's Fair. Obviously, it's All's Fair in Love and War which is very significant because the novel is set, of course, during the Vietnam War. So the name of the house is, is also significant, even if you weren't focusing on the, on the sort of the house itself. So it says, the house smells the same, which is to say it smells old and dusty like a museum. Jesse's grandfather used to smoke a pipe and a hint of his tobacco lingers. Okay, so this idea of the house as being like a museum and it, and being sort of literally permeated by the patriarchy. This is a house that is is um, you know very much a, a sort of uh, you know a, like a, a repository of authority and old kind of crusty Yankee wealth and and um, you know sort of longstanding classist uh, patriarchy. But what's interesting here is you have this guest house that had long been, you know, inhabited by the younger part of the generation. It's sort of a smaller satellite. It's across the yard, uh, but but it is essentially another part. I think it's called Little Fair. So you have All's Fair is, is the big sort of grand old house, and then you have this smaller house. But what has happened 
in the book, which again, this is that sort of notion of uh, of the house as symbol, is things are changing. You know, I mean, Exalta is all about things not changing as as the sort of grandparent, like that generation would be. Although she's having kind of an excellent romance with the caretaker. So, you know, the times they are a changing. But we have this other house that she has, uh, sorry, that, that Kate, the mom, has let, has agreed to let this guy stay, not knowing that it is her mom's lover. So Kate, who is the, the, the matriarch, uh, she's, the, she's the mom, not the grandmother. She's the mom, and she has invited this guy, the caretaker, of the two houses to live in the smaller house. The reason she has done that is because he has promised to help get her eldest son home from Vietnam. But this notion of, of, of allowing the caretaker to live in one of the houses is very significant because you have you know, this idea of, of, of sort of the lowly servant classes as literally infiltrating. And not only that, but you have this young boy who has come in and he is, you know, sort of the, the son of a wayward woman who is a hippie, who is out, you know, in the world on her way to Woodstock and who has changed her name to Lavender. So you have this real invasion of both this working class, but also of this young, uh, you know, this boy who is the son of a hippie who actually turns out to be kind of a dick. I mean, he's in, in lots of ways, he seems great. And this is to Hildebrand's credit. He seems great. And, you know, you're all kind of like, oh, Jesse, this is so cute. What a nice, like, first summer romance. And then it turns out, of course, like, he's not terrible. But it turns out, of course, that when he has an opportunity to be with someone who is closer to his age and who is, like, you know, maturing more quickly than 13-year-old Jesse, he opts to go with that girl. So, you have these two houses that are that are sort of a big house and a smaller house, and then you have this this infiltration. Um, I'm making it sound negative, but you have have sort of essentially some some shifting dynamics where some of the family is no longer there, which is significant, and and other elements are sort of moving in. So I love that sort of deft um, the way that there's a division, but but the uh, you know there's sort of an encroachment that's happening. So you you have this really great establishment of these houses. You also have the very conspicuous absence of male people, of males in this house. So you don't, the men, you know, who normally would be coming on the weekends are not in fact coming. You have the, the grandfather and his grandson, the caretaker living in the smaller house, but in the bigger house, it's really just Exalta and Kate and Jesse. And then eventually you have Blair who's pregnant and she is coming and who's literally like, it's like women and more women and girls and pregnant women. So it's, it's all about sort of women and matriarchy in the bigger house. And then you have this excellent move at the end of the novel where Kate herself decides that she is, you know, she's ready to kind of have her own place. She's ready to break off. She's ready to be drinking less because she's got a real alcohol problem. But she also is, is really ready, ready to sort of uh, align her family with their own home. So let's look at page 411. I, I really liked this. And I think if you are looking at the house as a, as a metaphor, it seemed a little predictable and it seemed a, like a tiny bit heavy handed. But honestly, I end up giving like a lot of leeway to Hildebrand because the prose is excellent. I mean, it's really like some of these things that are a little more predictable and a little more kind of on the nose that normally I'd be like, hmm, it's, it's well enough done and the, and the details are well chosen and the characters are well rounded so that I, in fact, I, I, I feel fine. I feel fine about it.
I did not feel great about her use of Anne Frank. Guys, I mean, there were a lot of comparisons with Anne Frank in a way that I was like, this is not great. I mean, I just don't, I don't think that you can compare Jesse, like this wealthy, young, fortunate woman on Nantucket for the summer with Anne Frank. Like that did not sit well with me. Okay, but on 411 here, down at the bottom, so it, Kate is saying she picks up everyone and, and they're all heading out. It, this is for Thanksgiving. There's one other house up ahead. This is this is a narrator. There's another. There's one other house up ahead. It's huge, bigger than All's Fair and Little Fair put together, bigger than the house in Brookline, bigger than Exalta's house on Mount Vernon Street. Holy moly, Kirby yells. That's so funny. Holy moly. Um, did you buy this? Is it ours? We did, Kate said. It's ours. So I love this. So this idea of, I mean, again, a little heavy handed, sure. But, you know, we're right at the end of the novel and, you know, you're sort of expecting some kind of like happy ending for these people. But I, I actually like the way that she's saying that this house is it's bigger than it's not grand. And it's out in a, a part of the island that is sort of windswept and it's very, very different and much kind of wilder which seems appropriate than kind of, you know, this like stodgy uh, kind of old, you know, crusty New England, uh, you know, hoity-toity, um, like old town, downtown. This is this is way out kind of in the wilds. But the idea of it being bigger than both of the, the vacation homes together, and in fact, being bigger than the house that they grew up in, and even bigger than their grandmother's fancy house in Boston, it's this very nice idea that that this is a house that that will have generations in a way that's more open and and bigger and more kind of inclusive in a way that's really that's really delightful. I also like the way that Kate so Kate bought it as a surprise to her husband and I think we are meant to read that as as her promise also to like not be drinking as much and also to be um you know sort of newly dedicating herself to her marriage even despite this incredibly stressful summer while her son has been off in, uh, in, I mean, honestly, if my son were off in Vietnam, I would probably drink a lot too. But she, at the end of the summer with this purchase of this new home, you have this idea of her kind of recommitting to, to those, to, to her family and to sobriety, or at least toning the drinking down. And then, um, so I, I, again, I think that Hildebrand is really doing an amazing job with this house motif that is that is artfully very very artfully done in my mind uh throughout summer of 69. okay as always we're going to take a quick look at the very end of the novel so this is on page 416. they're having um they're having thanksgiving all together in the uh in this new house of theirs and mcgee whose name is kind of weird i was like i'm not sure why mcgee um you know it's what's that song um bobby mcgee I don't, I'm not going to be able to pull up the lyrics of it right now, but you can uh, do a little literary sleuthing of your own and figure out maybe what the significance of her name is. McGee is the fiance of Tiger who is off in Vietnam. So, and David is the husband. So at the end of the book here, we have them all uh, settling in for their Thanksgiving dinner in this new home. David rises to offer words of thanks and then lifts his glass. McGee raises her glass filled with a delicious red wine. One quick interjection. I again, I think that Hildebrand has such a great handle on how to use this free and direct discourse, which is just a fancy name for a narrator that's very fluid and very nimble and, and really allows us 
into uh, you know the different consciousnesses of all of these different characters in ways that are really artful. That's exactly what McGee would say. It's a delicious red wine. She would not be like, oh, you know, what a great Cabernet or Bordeaux or whatever. So it, it's this nice idea of this being sort of indulgent for her and also um, of her like really not knowing much about wine. The only thing that could make this moment more perfect, she thinks, would be for Tiger to walk in right now, dressed in his combat fatigues, his expression weary but grateful. However, things like that happen only in the movies and in novels. I mean, I am a sucker for this. Like, yes, you, part of you is wondering, like, is Hildebrand going to bring the boy home? Because that would be like that would be too much but like maybe she will like i just you know you're sort of like oh my god how rom-commy and how beachy are we gonna get here but then when she has this kind of meta thing where she's like that only happens in novels you're like wait will she won't she you know i mean at the very end of the novel here the tension is kind of rising in a way that i found totally absorbing okay so she says however things like that happen only in the movies and in novels but incredibly just as all the adult members of the Levin Foley and Waylon clans rise, raise their glasses and say cheers, and as baby Geneviève utters a happy cry from her wind-up swing, the front door of the house opens. They all turn. McGee's heart hovers. It's a hummingbird, wings beating so fast they can't be seen. That is not a, that is not a metaphor that works for me, to be clear. No wonder I only picked out the ones with Kirby, because that one is not so great. Maybe it worked for you. It's kind of a bummer that that's at the very end too, because I just got pulled right out of the right out of the text. But then Kate, I mean, sorry, Kurt, oh, Kate is the mom. So we're going to move to Kate. Kate jumps to her feet, tiger, but there's no one standing at the door. It's just the wind blowing in off the water. So I, I mean, as I'm reading it aloud, it is sounding slightly cheese ball, but I am actually, I loved it. Loved the ending. I thought it was great. There's like this whole like seesaw, which in fact I think is very much like how these people would feel. You know, I mean, she really got me to feel what they're feeling, which is called mimesis, which is very impressive. It's just a fancy word for like making the reader feel what the characters are feeling. And she really did it. So then, um, and this idea of blowing the wind, blowing in off the water, you know, the song about like the daffodils and, and like the answer my friend is blowing in the wind. She, again, her use of music is so good. I mean, this is not a direct musical reference, but it's so, it's it's really well done because I think we are, you know, you have that kind of in your mind if you are a child of the 70s. Okay, and then we're not totally finished here. We have this fortunate son reprise. So again, this is a musical term and it is the very, very first uh, sort of chunk of the book is fortunate son which is a song by Credence Clearwater. And then we have the reprise of it at the end. And we're not gonna read the whole thing, but we are gonna read uh, on the end of, um, let's see, uh, 418, down at the bottom here. Uh, McGee Tiger, so this is Tiger. This is from his perspective, so we're now in Vietnam. McGee Tiger thinks Blair, Kirby, Messi, David, Exalta, Angus, the twins Tiger has yet to meet, and his mother, his mother, Kate, loves him more than all those people put together because, well, she's his mother. Some folks are born made to wave the flag, and he is one. Other soldiers at this table may be wishing they were safe in their homes with their families, but Tiger knows that right now he's where he's supposed to be, and he will see his family again soon enough. Of this, he is certain. Amen. 
he says. Oh my God, you guys, those of you on the YouTube channel, look at my, look at my marginalia. That is so like lame. I have like a little heart and a little smiley face at the end here and like a little double, um, you know, double mark, <laughs> like little hashtag thing on the side. I mean, not hashtag, like a, you know, I'm, I'm underscoring all of this stuff. So one thing I did circle this idea, some folks are born made to wave the flag. That is a line from Fortunate Son, which is that Credence Clearwater song. And again, it's, this use of music is so great. It's subtle, but it's really very effective. And I found um, this is just the right amount for me in a beach read of like conclusion. Like we, you know, he's gonna come home. He says of that, I am sure. But he also has a lot of conviction about, about his service. So she has somehow, even though like I am a real pacifist, but I was like, wow, okay. Like I, I get it. Like this kid really has a lot of conviction about why he is there. He was kind of aimless before, wasn't sure what he wanted to do, didn't really like college. So, so part of me was like, wait, how did she do this? Like she got me to actually think that, you know, like maybe his experience in Vietnam was great. Um, my dad actually was, he enlisted in Vietnam and he was an officer and he was a pilot and it was a great experience for him. So um, I am gonna conclude with that. I really think that Ellen Hildebrand, I think this book is great, loved it. And I think that digging in to something that is just so pleasurable and frothy and fun is actually really rewarding when it is rewarding. So I hope to see you back at the Fox page to read something else. I cannot promise it will be as light and fun as this, uh, but there will be a lot of really rewarding pieces of literature to dive into. So keep reading.